You're listening to Thinking Biblically. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Thinking Biblically, which is a podcast by video and audio that um, I restarted recently with the desire to help all of us, myself included, see how all of Scripture applies to all of life. Um, I'm wearing this special hoodie that I got. I didn't realize when I decided to put it on that was gonna, the microphone was going to get in the way. But let's, it says here, get used to different. And some of you know exactly what this is. This is my Father's Day gift. Now, by the time you see this, it's going to be a few weeks after Father's Day, probably. But we're actually recording this about a, a week and a day after Father's Day. And my family got together and surprised me at our Father's Day picnic with with this hoodie. And I reacted like a little kid because it was something like I always wanted. I couldn't believe it. And those of you who are in Canada know it's not so easy to get one of these from the States for whatever reasons, but there's all sorts of stories that are behind that. And But if you don't know what this is, uh, this is a hoodie from the uh, uh, TV series The Chosen, uh, which is a multi-season um, depiction of the Gospels, and there's been nothing like it. I'm actually very, very um, picky, critical about depictions of Jesus and other biblical stories because they often don't get it right. Now, at first glance, you might think the chosen is just making all sorts of stuff up, but they're actually doing what they're doing very, very well. And I'm, I'm hoping at some point, maybe we can get somebody from the chosen on the show, or if they're if they can't come, still have a discussion uh, about it. So if you have any questions or comments about the chosen, of course if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. But if you have and you've got an opinion you want to share or questions that you have that you'd like to ask me, uh, please do that. You can send that to comments at thinkingbiblically.org, um, as well as any other comments, questions you have about the pod. Cast. Uh, before we continue, don't forget, if you're watching this on YouTube, and if you're not, you can go over there and subscribe, and also don't forget to press the notification bell so that you can be notified when a, a new episode is available or about to be available. All right, I think it's time to talk about this, uh, this uh, episode's guest, and I am very happy to have uh, with us today... Dr. Doug Trick. Uh, Doug is professor of linguistics, specializing in Bible translation at Trinity Western University in Langley, British Columbia, uh, which is part of Greater Vancouver. I first met Doug during my wife's and my final year. This, my wife's and I, my wife's and my, Doug's a linguistic expert. He might have to help me with his grammar, but I'll just leave it as it is. During my wife's and my final year of Bible school in Toronto, as he and his wife were temporarily in the city and we were attending the same congregation. Uh, for some reason, we became friends, and while hardly seeing each other these past 40 years, we've stayed in touch. So both in person and by phone, we've discussed the dynamics of Bible translation, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Doug has helped me grapple with my attempt to understand how the original languages of Scripture should be represented in translation. And so I hope that our conversation today will do the same for all of you. So thank you, Doug, for joining me. Well, I'm really glad to be here, Alan. I, I too am very grateful for our friendship and our uh, the things that we share together in ministry. 
So it's great well, to be here. I have to brag about you first because there's something that you did for me that I'll never forget. And you probably remember because of the, all, all the hard work you did. So I was in a four-year Bible college program and we were we met when we were in our very last year. And um, I was taking second year Greek. And back in those days, there were two types of people, the people who typed and the people who didn't type. And I was in the latter group and we had to hand in typed papers. And so we would either hire or get somebody uh, or we would painstakingly peck at the, oh, do you know what a typewriter is, folks? Uh, anyways, it's, you know, chicka chicka ding, shunk, you know, one of those. And, um, and so Doug uh, graciously offered to type my paper, but that's not all. When you did a paper in one of the biblical languages, Hebrew or, or Greek, the way it was done, and you got to picture this, this is not with word processing. What you'd have to do is you would type all the English words and leave room for the, in this case, the Greek words and enough room to then go back and handwrite in all the Greek words. Well, because of Doug's training, which he ended up using professionally, he was actually able to both type and insert all the Greeks were all the Greek words, and it must have been like an 18-page final paper or something like that. And so, uh, I don't know if it's if it's too much to say. I owe you my life, Doug. <laughs> well, I'm just glad I was able to be there at the time when uh, when you needed that. I was there mainly because Phyllis, my wife, was taking a tropical medicine course in Toronto, and I did have some some time on my hands while she was doing that. So. The Lord just brought the two of us together, and I'm glad for that. Isn't he such a nice guy? And so yes. Doug's number is, no, we'll, we will now continue. Um, so we were chatting before, and so this is not a surprise uh, to you. Could you take some time to share about your own personal faith journey and then how that eventually led you to want to be a Bible translator? Sure. So, um I grew up in a nominal Christian family. Um, my uh, my parents took us to church quite regularly, um, in the early years especially. And um, I was very familiar with the gospel story, and I was quite moved by it as well. But uh, the, the church that I was part of at that time, there was never any idea mentioned that um, we could actually be in a very close and a personal relationship with God as our father. He was um, he was portrayed as, you know, the creator God, but more or less as one who, who then took his hands off the universe and kind of let things um, go as they did. And I know, and my experience was that my, my family didn't find their faith as uh, something that made a huge difference in their decisions in life or, um, or, uh, of course, the idea of actually seeking God for personal guidance was never part of our worldview. So when I came, when, when I was in high school, a, um, uh, and I grew up in a small town about 20 miles north of Winnipeg. There was no real uh, evangelical church in the town at the time. There was a number of mainline uh, Protestant as well as Catholic Church and and um, so I, never so really I just want to I just want to stop you and this is going to be interesting because we're going to be talking about uses of words yes um, of course I don't know all the people that are watching this yes. but something's right. happened to the term evangelical today it's taken okay. on all sorts of layers of political yes. stuff and all the rest so sure. I, I think we would agree that when we use the term evangelical we mean Bible believing congregation 
Is that yeah, right. Correct. Right. Yeah. Okay. Continue. So uh, yeah, Bible believing is a good is a really good way. And, and by by Bible believing, we mean people who are really committed to um, following what the Bible teaches um, and taking it seriously. So that was not part of my experience, even though you know I had heard the gospel story many times. So when but when I was in high school, a young man moved to our town and he began working with what at that time was just a Bible study group and eventually uh, became a church in our town. And he invited me to our youth group, uh, to his youth, the youth group that he was um, working with. He was just a young man, still in Bible college, actually. And so I, I attended the youth group um, and I was really blown away because here was were, there were peers of mine. These were also high school students who, um, who talked about uh, God as though he was... Uh, he, they could, when they prayed to him, God actually heard their prayers. They talked about um, different areas of their life that um, uh, where they made decisions based on what they felt God wanted them to do. And it was just a totally different uh, experience um, for me. And it drew me in to that I wanted to know this. I, I, I knew the gospel story, but what the piece of the puzzle that was missing for me was that um, this was not just a wonderful story. This was actually God reaching out and wanting to wanting me to respond to him personally and to know him. And that just changed everything. I actually, um, if I backtrack a little bit, the, my family did, uh, my, my father left home when I was about 12. And um, uh, I was living in a kind of a situation that was, it was very depressing. To, uh, to all of my brothers and sisters and my mom who was still raising us. And I just didn't see anybody uh, in my family or even my extended family for the most part who was really enjoying life and was really thrilled to be alive. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually had suicidal thoughts because when I looked around, I just didn't see any point in, in living. However, when I met this uh, these young people at this youth group, I saw they had a purpose. They, they knew that God had a purpose for their lives and that gave that changed everything because it it brought meaning to their lives to their existence so you know it was like um <clears throat> it was like going from darkness to light really and right from that early experience i knew that uh, there would be no no greater purpose in life than to make uh, to make god's message meaningful to people around me and so then I, um, I just automatically felt, well, the logical thing for me to do is to go into ministry of some sort. I didn't know exactly what that was going to be involved. The default for me was to become a pastor and to be um, involved in leading people to the Lord and discipling people and so on. So I went to Bible college with that purpose in mind. And um, the Bible college I went to at that time, they had compulsory chapel every day. Uh, Monday to Friday, and compulsory attendance at um, the mission conference once or twice a year. And these were okay for me, but I, I sort of had an idea that, well, I knew what God, why he was had led me to Bible college, and it was to become a pastor. So I, I kind of um, put up with these missionaries who were coming. But my experience with language, for one thing, was that um, I, I had studied French, as most Canadians did at that time in, in elementary and even uh, high school. But I didn't, uh, I never became fluent uh, a French speaker. And as I studied Greek and Hebrew at Bible college, 
I, I was okay with them, but I didn't I didn't flourish at all. And there was no sense at all in that I was learning to um, to communicate with um, Greek speaking or Hebrew speaking people, just as I wasn't able to communicate with French speaking people. So the idea of me becoming a missionary, it just my thought was well, that's not not really why I'm here. And so I kind of tuned them out, the missionary speakers. But in my last year at Bible College, during one of these missions conferences, uh, the one good thing about mission conferences, they had free coffee for students in the student lounge. So, of course, I would go go and get my coffee. And this guy walked up to me. And to this day, I don't know who he was. I don't remember who he was. But he was a representative of a Bible translation organization, probably Wycliffe. But I'm not even sure about that. But he um, he asked me just kind of casually, how how do you like Bible college? Oh, and I told him very truthfully, like it was just the best years of my life by far, because I was learning uh, my my walk with God, my relationship with Him, had deepened so uh, so on so many levels, because I was able to hear His message and get to know the Scriptures and and. He, uh, what he he and and also the scriptures were a really a rock and a foundation for for me for making decisions in life and it just made a huge difference to me and uh, so he just kind of smiled and said that's that's so good to hear that by the way did you know there's still thousands of people groups around the world who don't have any scripture in their language and I just couldn't believe that like I, at first I thought he was pulling my leg. But it was, it was pretty obvious he wasn't. And I just couldn't imagine what would it be like to get up day after day and uh, and go through life without hearing from God, without knowing more about who he is and who I am and, and, um, and what he's calling me to do, what his purpose is for my life. So just really from that, from that brief conversation, God gave me a real burden for people who... Um, who just didn't have access to his message in their language. And so um, so I began uh, pursuing that and uh, uh, writing to Wycliffe and um, a few other, actually, other Bible translation organizations as well, and pursuing that. And as I went to study linguistics, I, I actually came to learn that uh, learning a language in a community where it's spoken is a totally different thing. It's, it's like... Um, if you try to learn to play hockey simply by watching videos, that was my experience of trying to learn French or Greek or Hebrew in a classroom setting when it wasn't it wasn't a conversational, it wasn't communicating about life, experiencing life really in another language. And so when I began studying linguistics, I found I really loved this. It was a wonderful uh, subject to study. And, um, and I was learning a lot about the way language works. And it really shaped my my approach to the way the way I approach scripture, because of course your your view of language is going to influence your view of how to um, how do how do you encounter scripture. You know that'd be a really good place to kind of to segue to the, this next part. First of all, thank you for that. I don't think I ever knew uh, your your personal story before, and uh, it was it was, it was sure. quite impactful. And and thank the Lord for his, his work in your life. Um, so, Bible translation, like, isn't it just kind of look up the words in some sort of kind of, you just get a, a um, find a really good 
Greek or Hebrew English dictionary and just match up the words and string the sentences together? Yeah, of course, that's what it is. Oh, it is. Okay. Well, thank you. It's been really nice to have you. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, uh, maybe I don't. At some point, I want to ask you whether it fits here or after, because um, we've talked about this before uh, about the differences between translating into a a language that's never had a Bible before. In fact, maybe they've never even had writing before. And right. that kind of Bible translation, which I'm assuming you're an expert in, as opposed to uh, an English translation that you've explained to me, that the dynamics of those two are different. So if you could fit that in at some point, sure. maybe it's just could you give us very, very general, like what's what is Bible translating all about? Wow. Well, uh, my vision of it is is that um, God. Well, for one thing, as we all know, although we may not have thought very deeply about this, human language is very limited in its ability to really communicate. Um, in other words, uh, no matter how close you are to someone, if you try to replicate whatever you're experiencing, if you try to replicate that in the experience of whoever you're talking with, it's very difficult. You can get you can get a long ways. Obviously, we do. We do it all the time. Uh, with some people, it's the replication process is much deeper and much more um, significant than it is with other people, obviously. But even so, even if you've been married to someone for 40 or 50 years, uh, <clears throat> communication is never flawless. Now, imagine communication. Okay, so, th so that's one of the inherent properties of, of language in general. It's not a perfect way to replicate experience, even though it, it does um, it, it does succeed to a very high degree. Now, you take that and you think about uh, the, the inherent um, kind of flaws or, or um, weaknesses of human language as a way of communicating. Now you think about, what about when you think about an infinite God? A God who is infinite and we are finite god who is perfect and we are broken and um um uh defiled uh and our thinking is defiled so how does a holy a perfect inf uh, infinite god communicate at all with human beings and then how does he do that using human language with all of its weaknesses so that's really i mean when we think about God communicating himself through written language, well, through spoken language initially, which eventually became uh, written down, when we think about how does it, what does it mean that God communicates with us, there is a huge, um, uh, I don't want to say the word, say reduction, but obviously, no matter how carefully and how thoroughly and seriously we study scripture, the idea that we really understand God's thoughts um, is, is uh, to begin with, is somewhat problematic. I, I um, think we're just going to have to just park at one spot for a second. Okay, so, sure. Um, I was wondering if we should elaborate more on this whole idea about the imperfection of language in general and imperfection of communication, because guarantee there are people out there that um, I understand my wife perfectly. Right. Um, 
and it could be the other way around and oh i've got my friend and i we're you know again we we're we're almost reading each other's minds and there's people that that deny that there's imperfection in communication we've been married a long time not to each other but to our wives and uh and it's not just us and some of these lessons you learn as you get older and you realize how imperfect languages are. Then you get into, multi, you know, multicultural relationships and and right. and social media today. Like people think they know they're communicating with one another and it's yes. and, and it's actually more emotion than it is meaning. And and right. so I'm with you that communication is actually a, very challenging. But then there I could hear some people saying, but wait a second, aren't we talking about Bible translation? And yeah, okay, we got these translations, these other languages, but the original text, aren't they perfect because it's God's word? And you're saying language itself has imperfection? Like, come on, Doug. But the Bible's inspired. So can you try to explain how is it that a perfect God can use imperfect language and it can still be God's word at the same time? Right. And that's the thing. That comes back to God can do anything. God can do anything. I mean, obviously, God doesn't do illogical things. God doesn't make two plus two make 12. He doesn't. But if God wants to communicate to my heart uh, and to my my being at the deepest levels of my being, he can do that. And he can even overcome the imperfections of human language. Uh, so partly what I'm saying is let's not um, let's not place on human language a burden that is greater than it can really sustain. And that's not to say that God can't accomplish his purposes. It's just that he takes he takes all the brokenness of and the 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 uh the foibles, the um imperfections, the inadequacies of human language, just like he takes other inadequacies of life and he redeems them and he overcomes them. He can do that. But it's because of who he is and his his working through of his Holy Spirit through his word, it's not so much the idea that God's, we, I mean, most most of us will reject a, um, a dictation view of inspiration, uh, at least on the surface. We will re- we'll reject what the idea that that scripture is kind of like abracadabra. It's the, uh, it's the, it's the formal units. It's the words themselves that have some sort of magical power. We'll, we'll reject that. And yet, so maybe we do, do sorry, we just for our people out there, um, and this is something I teach Bible, I teach Bible to uh, children in a uh, Christian classical academy, and so I've, we've actually dealt with this very topic about how inspiration works. Yes, you could actually teach these things to children as long as you keep your words simple enough for them to understand. Right. Um, and so there are religions that believe that their God or spiritual entity has actually dictated the words to the, the scribe or the prophet. Um, right. But that's not how the Bible works with the odd exceptions. So even the Ten Commandments, the Bible tells were written by the finger of God. That's even better than dictation. And then it's a little hard to know with some of the prophetic literature when they says, thus says the Lord, it, it leans, might might lean towards dictation, though they might be summarizing. So we don't, it's not really clear, but much of scripture has been inspired in this other way. And do you want to explain what that other way is if it's not dictation? <laughs> well, that's the, that, that's a bit of a, uh, a difficult thing to do because um, 
really the the teaching that we have through scripture itself uses a metaphor. It's it says God breathed out the scripture. And one of the problems, of course, with metaphor, I mean, one of the strengths of metaphor, you can actually say things with metaphor that you can't say it, it better in any other way. However, better is one thing. Uh, precise is a different thing. Precise and better isn't always the same thing. So we don't really have a precise explanation of what does it mean that God communicates with us through his written word? And in what does God breathe really mean? What, what, most of us would reject the idea, well, it means dictation. Well, and as you said, there, there are places where it says, thus says the Lord. But, I mean, one of, one rather striking piece of evidence that it probably was never intended to mean dictation is that um, we probably don't have, we, we definitely don't have most of what Jesus taught in his words, uh, we have Greek translations. He probably did most of his teaching in Aramaic. Uh, he may have used some Greek when he was talking with Roman soldiers. Um, he may have used there, uh, Hebrew, Hebrew. There's Hebrew through there too. Exactly. Or? Yes, uh, with the scribes and so on. But um, we don't. Do, if if Scripture was intended to be accepted, if, if God breathed was intended to be understood as as um, dictated, then um, uh, you would expect that we would have Jesus' words preserved for us in in the in the written scriptures. Another issue, of course, is, um, uh, and this is getting now more, more into linguistics than into theology and inspiration. But the fact is, we all know that languages change. So uh, the notion that God would would dictate uh, His word using a language which is going to undergo major changes. Uh, languages, as we know, they change from decade to decade, much less century to century. And so um, for God to communicate himself uh, through, through dictation and for that to be the extent of his communication, that would be great maybe for one generation. But uh, that's it. And so then he would have to dictate his word again to uh, to the next generation and so on. That's just dealing with one particular people group. What about the fact, of course, that there are thousands of people groups around the world? And um, if God wants us to make disciples of all peoples, he wants them to hear from him. And uh, he doesn't, there's no, there's no indication whatsoever that we, we must teach everybody biblical Hebrew and uh, New Testament Greek in order for God to hear from them. Yeah, so, and, what you, and what you brought up, uh, about the fact that we have, uh, you know, Jesus taught, and then already we have translation and how that was ended up being written down. So we see there this um, uh, equivalency of some sort between what was originally presented and then how it was then passed on to others. Right. Um, a lot of people don't even know that the the uh, the alphabet of the of the Hebrew scriptures changed over time. So there's right. all right, and so there's all all these various issues. And but back to the um, the imperfection of language. But God didn't dictate what is inspiration. I think one of the things we we want to emphasize is that God adequately and fully expressed uh, Himself through these people without. Um, you probably know the word better than me. With you know without what's the word? You know going over. 
you know, undermining their own personalities. Okay, right. So he yes, actually yes. worked through real people. And so that's right, why, right. whether it's the Gospels, uh, even Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which some people think, oh, it's the same thing over and over again, not when you look closely and you actually see the different personalities of the different biblical yes, writers. Right. Same thing with the prophets, like sure. so Isaiah is so different from Ezekiel, from Jeremiah. There's real personality. Yes, and so right. God didn't override. That's the word I was looking for. He didn't override those personalities right. in order to get his word out. He was doing something even more amazing yes, by right. working through normal human beings. Exactly. Yeah. So, so and and theology does teach us that there is a some, there are some parallels between Jesus, the incarnate God who lived as a human being among us, and God's word. God, God using human language. God incarnates himself uh, using human language. And there's an, there's, a, there's there has to be a certain degree in which God accommodates. God takes, takes um, a very imperfect medium of human language, and he uses it for his purposes, just like every one of us. He takes us as imperfect people, and he uses us for his purposes. So the notion of God breathed for us... Uh, somehow God does it. We don't know the, we can't explain the mechanism, but why should we? Why sh what makes us think that we should be able to explain God's mechanical uh, processes? Because they're just not. That's great. Uh, that's a great point. It's a mystery. And, and that's okay. So if the, if the original communication of God's message through his, through his people, his prophets, his, um, his people as a community, uh, and eventually it became written down through through certain writers. If God used and superintended that whole process uh, using all of the um, inadequacies and imperfections of people and human language, and yet communicates himself to people uh, then, and he can do it now. So I see translation actually as kind of just, a, just one extension of that whole process, that process that began many, many centuries ago. I mean, it began with Adam when God cre communicated with the first human. And it just continues on to this day. And it continues in different ways, of course, when it happens to be um, when we take these the scriptures as they've been preserved and we seek to communicate what is it that God is revealing about himself and about humans and about how we can be reconciled to him, all of that. How do we communicate that in different languages? That's just all part of an, an extended process. So, again, we're back again. Translation is not just taking a word, plugging right. in the other word. So, right. I know this is a huge topic, but so what do you do? What does, and again, it's a, we should take a few moments too. Again, you decide where this should go, but, you know, dealing with people who don't even have a written language. So, what, right. maybe that's a good place to start. So, why don't you, could you step us through the process of translating the scriptures for a people who don't even have a written language? Well, um, that's not really as as odd or awkward a thing as it might sound, because uh, because all communication is primarily verbal to begin with. Like the written forms of language are a derivative. It's a it's a uh, it's just a, a transcription really of um, of what goes on when people are experiencing life. So language, language is a phenomena 
a phenomenon of people interacting with one another as they experience life. Now, one of the consequences of our highly literate society, we've had centuries now, uh, particularly as I'm thinking about the Western world, um, of uh, the the um, the impact of uh, literature and literacy as uh, it's just taken for granted. Part of the one of the consequences of that is that we almost tend to think about language as primarily written. And by the way, people also talk to one another. But that's <laughs> when people talk to one another, uh, they don't talk very precisely. They correct themselves all the time. They leave gaps. They 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 uh, they unfinished they don't finish the sentences and all sorts of things. So if you want to know real really good language, you look at the the classics, right? And you look at literature. And so we we've elevated our view, or we've actually constrained our view to thinking that good language is written language. And so then the night the idea that you're translating scripture for people who don't even have literature, they don't even have written language, it seems kind of odd to us, as though, in fact, people have often talked about these primitive unwritten languages, whereas um, uh, the most primitive languages that we've ever encountered are just as, uh, they might not have all sorts of words for for differ a carburetor or a computer, uh, all sorts of computer terminology and so on. Do we have carburetors talk- anymore? <laughs> right. Go, go, go on. <laughs> But they can talk about human emotion and human experience uh, just to the same degree that that people from the West or people from highly literate societies have, uh, can do, and maybe in some cases even better, because um, because they're so they're so uh, they're so accustomed to genuine uh, human interaction in communication because it's if it's all face to face to begin with. Also, a lot of people don't realize, I don't think I thought about it too much till recently, I read somewhere pointing it out, that the societies in which the Bible was written were fundamentally illiterate. Of course. Certainly, most people didn't read, even people who knew the scriptures knew it because they heard it, not because they they actually read the text. Only a few people were able to read the text. Other people heard it. And so most of their communication was similar to these cultures that that don't have writing yes yeah exactly right so there's so in some ways these um pre-literate societies that we work with uh, have lots more in common with the whole communication experience and of course they even have lots of uh of life experience things in common things like um the value of hospitality you know you don't in many of of these um so-called third world or developing nations you don't have to teach them much about hospitality uh they have way more to teach us about it and so when scripture refers to certain uh, experiences or uh, narratives or parables or something where hospitality is a huge value, you don't have to have a, a footnote or a, a study note to teach people about that. So there are places in scripture where um, where it's way easier to translate for some people groups than it is for English, even though we take it for granted that English has got it right. That's that's um, a really I, good point. So then, so still, so can you give us a little outline of what the process is, from first encounter to delivering a written text? Okay, so that, um, yeah, the, the one one starting point is we need to we need to begin to um, experience life as the people group that we're translating for the new audience as they experience life 
And when, so in other words, when we talk about learning their language, we're not just talking about what words do they use for cow and for run and for drink and for water. We're not just talking about uh, finding out what what are their labels, what are the words that they use for our experiences. Rather, we're, we're in most cases, we don't start any translation for two, three, four years until we've learned the language enough that we can actually experience life as they do using their words, using their uh, expressions. We can, we generally look for the kind of fluency where we are thinking in their language, just as we normally would be thinking in English. Because that, because uh, you know, when we're communicating with one another, what we're doing really is we're we're trying to replicate our experience of life in the head and in the in the life of the person we're communicating with. So that's why incarnational um, ministry is a huge part of uh, before it, it precedes Bible translation for the most part. That doesn't say. I want to ask you. We had somebody recently on the podcast use the same kind of terminology. Can you take a stab at defining what you mean by incarnational? Okay, so incarnational is a. It's a. It's a big. Uh, that's it's actually a transliterated word. I'm not, I shouldn't use that because that needs to be needs to be defined too. But the point is, incarnational just simply means um, uh, becoming embedded in the life of uh, whoever it is that you're trying to communicate with. So when God, when God became a human being. Uh, he took on the experiences of that humans uh, tend, in many cases, experience. So it's an it's an embodiment, right? Embodiment so is God part embodied of it. Yeah, himself of in order right. to interface with human beings in a truly effective manner. It was right. not an academic study; it was right. disconnected. And so, uh, you you were explaining how you live among the people, you get to know them, you you smell their breath, you eat their food, right. you right. share their sorrows. And it's only once you've been saturated personally with right. their life experience that you could even hope to try to connect them to the words of scripture. Yeah, and I, I, another way of talking about that is uh, we have these sort of two very different understandings of the word culture. Uh, in English. And so one one understanding of it is, well, this is a cultured person. They listen to Beethoven. Uh, they wear this kind of clothing. They drink this kind of, uh, uh, this, uh, and they, they consume this kind of food. Well, in fact, if, if we're going to have, uh, we're going to go celebrate inter-multiculturalism, okay? So we have a festival. What do we do when we, when we celebrate different cultures? We see people wearing different costumes, eating different kinds of food, having different kinds of songs and so on. Those are, are a part of culture, but those are just the veneer. Really, when, we're, when we think about what does it mean to, to understand or to be embedded within a culture, what we mean is worldview. How do they think about, about generosity and hospitality? What, is it, what does it mean to be a good person or to be an evil person? Those are the things that are, are, are really important to cultures. So, when we want to be in, in, have an incarnational ministry, it doesn't mean just that we eat the same food that they do and wear the same clothes. That may be a part of it. But really what it means is we, we understand good and evil much more the way they do. We don't necessarily agree with it, but at least we understand 
it um, just like I don't I don't agree with what good and evil means in most North American cultures either. But when we're talking about a culture, it has a lot more to do with values that that are governing and uh, directing people. A lot of them are unconscious values, assumptions about life, assumptions about causality. All of these kinds of deep, deep, un, unexamined ideas. These that's this is what culture is, uh, not just um, clothing and and food. And these these are things. Some like there's many many people that are never outside of their own culture and may never be outside their own culture. And right. the huge difference is we tend when we're with our own culture, and of course we have individual differences. It's uh, we're completely unaware that that's even a thing until you begin to interact with somebody of another yes. culture. Right. Yeah. And this is one of the. One of the difficulties of trying to understand translation when a person is mostly monolingual and mostly monocultural is because, and, and this was my experience, when we, before I started studying linguistics and translation, I was primarily monolingual and monocultural. So one of my, so how did I even develop an understanding of translation? Well, you know, when I was a kid, we, we played games where we, um, where we would take the letters of a word and we would substitute them with numbers and we would write notes to each other. And so this was using a different kind of a code to talk to another. It was kind of like a different language, right? We were translating something into, into numbers. Or another experience was Morse code. So I knew about Morse code. I, I was never fluent in Morse code, but I knew about the phenomenon called Morse code, where we take letters of a, of a, of a sentence and we, uh, transpose them into dots and dashes. So those were my my primary experiences of different codes, of different ways of communicating. Now, what's really significant about that is with respect to Morse code or with respect to converting uh, letters into numbers, there's no difference in culture or semantics. In other words, I, I could take the word dog, my experience of dog, and I could com- convert that into numbers or Morse code with no shift whatsoever in uh, in semantics. However, that's not the way it is with, uh, with when people live lives in different uh, among different people groups. Um, and so, one way that I try to try to express this is the the biggest the single biggest challenge in translation, especially among, when you're translating from two different languages, they're not genetically related. Also, of course, we're dealing with with a source text that was written two to four thousand years ago. So you've got this huge cultural and linguistic distance. And the biggest challenge then for translation is not to find, well, the biggest challenge can be expressed by this this kind of axiom. It's not just the labels that are different, but it's the categories themselves that are different. So suppose you took an an English dictionary and then you wanted to compose a a dictionary in, you you wanted to construct a dictionary in a totally different language, uh, maybe even a, a previously unwritten language, but you're developing a writing system and um, you're developing an, a dictionary that, that is a, an expression of their internalized lexicon. So you take this English dictionary and you delete all the head words. You take out the word uh, dog and run and water, and then you plug in the words from this other language. So that's one way of conceiving it. However, 
that's 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 never that'll never work because it's not only the labels that are different, but it's actually the categories that each of those labels refer to. That the categories being when you look up an, an English dictionary that's that's English to English, you see a label and you see a, a description of that category. So that's why word for word translation doesn't work. It's because Can you give an example of what it so you said what it isn't. So what is it if it's not plugging in the words? And yeah, I know you've given the background. Is, Can you give an example of of the vast difference in you know what I'm trying to ask? Yeah, I do. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's look at a word, a Tagalog word, ia. Uh, it's spelled I-Y-A, and then it has a glottal stop at the end. What, what was that language that you said? It's Tagalog, the, the national language of the Philippines. Okay. So there's this, and it's translated very frequently as the word, in, in into English, it's translated as shame. Um, and most of us uh, who have done much traveling or reading, we know that there's this Asian thing, uh, experience of shame or losing face or something. Now we just don't have a category in our in, in our not only in our dictionary. We don't have a category in life that corresponds very well to what Filipinos uh, experience. This is pan-Philippine. It's it has different words in different Philippine languages. There's over 100 different languages in the Philippines, but their experience is much the same, even though they have slightly different related words. Now in English. We just don't have that category. Uh, so we can use a word like shame or lose face or something, but it's it's, to- it's very different from what most of us mean by the word shame. So, and now this, that's just one example, but it, it's all over the place. Um, even words like family and love and faithfulness, all of these things which are hugely important experiences and hugely important to culture, we can find sort of the closest English equivalent to what they are experiencing, and we can try and use that. But uh, it's only a shadow. It's uh, it's just the closest equivalent, but it's not the it's not a equivalent. It's not the same category. Would you say the Filipino understanding of shame is actually closer to the biblical one than the North American understanding of shame? Yeah, I would say so. I like I've never actually considered that question, but but I would say def from from what I read in the scripture when it talks about about people being uh, feeling feeling shamed, that to me is what I see when I when I see Filipinos experiencing that. Okay, so twice already now we've got uh, the Bible was written with uh, illiterate uh, illiterate or preliterate culture, more like much of the developing some of the developing world. It's closer to the Bible. We've got this concept of shame in the Philippines, closer to the Bible than the Western understanding. Wow, I guess translating into these cultures must be really easy. Uh, that's a great, that's a great uh, observation. And, and, and it reminds me of another kind of a myth or at least a, a partial misunderstanding of the nature of translation. And that is expressed by... The, the, uh, the maxim that in all translation there is loss. Well, that's true, but then in all communication there is loss. So again, when I try to communicate with my wife or when I try to communicate with you, there is a certain degree of loss. Uh, the, the, the reality is in translation there is as much gain, there can be, if translation is done well, 
there can be as much gain as there is in loss. It's just that in a slightly different different ways. There's little shifts that have to take place. Now, we didn't talk about this before. I don't think we've ever talked about this before unless I forgot, which is another kind of loss, of course, which we might be dealing with. But <laughs> right. besides that, as far as I can remember, um, so this concept that you just introduced, which is which is actually really fascinating, very important, people are often told, well, you've got to read it in the original. And they don't use the technical term loss, but it's like you miss so much when you're not right. reading the original, when right. actually there's a lot of people who've done, like me, I've done two years of Hebrew, two years of Greek. Uh, right. That could probably make me actually more dangerous than not yeah, knowing right. any of it at all, especially compared to someone like you that knows a lot more. And so we we could encourage people, like you were saying, so a good translation, which is a whole other topic, of course, how do we determine a good translation, but a good translation has done all this work with the originals to try its best to represent what the original is saying in the target language. So whether it's an English speaker or it's a, a, a group that's never had a written language before, um, you're taking those people and then teaching them Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek uh, right. may not be the best route. Absolutely. Well, it's not, it's not and the again, best. Again, one of the issues there is what does it mean to, to teach or, or to learn? What does it mean to learn Hebrew or Greek? And if, if by that we mean I have become embedded in Old Testament Hebrew or life, in other words, I, I am now experiencing life in much the same way that Abraham was. If that's what you mean by learning Hebrew, then that's fine. Then you can, you can make use of the Hebrew Old Testament. Same thing. I, I think you're saying we can't do that. I, I think I think You're I am. Sneaky. I agree, right? <laughs> and in fact, there are no native speakers of uh, biblical Hebrew or New Testament Greek anymore. There isn't. And in that sense, there's 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 nobody who can make use of the original language texts to the quite same degree as they were intended for their original audience. But then it almost sounds like uh, translation is hopeless. Then, if you can't. It's almost sound, are you saying we can't access what the original intentions of the words and the stories are? Uh, I'm saying we can't access them quite in the same degree as they would have been to the original audiences. Just simply because every every communication event assumes a huge body of shared knowledge and shared experience. That's why, you, you know, you and I, when we communicate, we communicate out of our our shared experience of the times that we've been together. Everything that we're saying now is different because of the time, because of the experiences we've had. And so when, when um, Mark was writing to his original audience and when Isaiah was prophesying and writing or communicating with his original audience, his their audiences had a huge body of shared values and experiences with which they understood the message. So what we're doing when we're translating scripture is we're trying to to do the very best we can in helping our new audience experience as much as possible of what Isaiah or Mark were wanting their original audience to to understand. And... um, there was. I had another thought in mind that just left. But one, uh, when, when I was talking about, oh, well, I guess yeah, which which really leads to another topic, and that's the 
what is the burden of Bible translation? Like what, what, uh, to what extent are we responsible to ensure that our new audience will actually experience the same thing as the original audience? Well, that's an impossible dream um, by itself. The, the other thing that, yeah, now I remember what it was that I was thinking. The Holy Spirit is involved in every interaction uh, between, well, the Holy Spirit is right there when people are interacting with God's Word. Yep. The, the author of this body of literature is still alive and accessible right. to the reader. Right. And he knows us intimately. And he knows the the human author of scripture intimately. And he knows the human author's original audience intimately. He knows all of that. And this process of God communicating with his people um, using the, the written word of God, that's part of it. That's a huge part. I don't denigrate that at all. I don't set that aside and kind of put it in the corner. It's a huge part of it, but it's not the whole part. It's not the whole thing. Um, if it was... We would all have to learn Hebrew Greek and not only learn it, but be embedded in it. But God go, God takes all the imperfections of language and the, and the imperfections of our understanding of Hebrew and Greek life and the understanding of, you know, what was it that the Corinthians were experiencing when Paul was writing to them? We know a certain amount of that, but it's only partial. He takes all of that, that imperfection, and he still communicates with us perfectly. Yeah, there's, so there's something something I want to bounce off you because uh, we're you know we're running out of time. I just want to make sure. sure, especially since some people might be thinking of you know oh the language is imperfect is imperfect. Uh, we can't access the original culture. Oh no. Oh thank God there's God. Um, and so does he just you know does he just communicate directly? Do we really need his word then? Some of these concerns. And so the thing that I want to uh, throw out to you and. I don't think we've discussed this either, so I don't know what you're going to say. Um, God, we agree, God oversaw the work of the scripture. He inspired it. And right. that even includes its literary forms, the right. the collection of stories, um, the all the various differences, the fact that some letters in the New Testament, it's clear what problems are being addressed. Other letters, it's very, very unclear. Um, right. And... I've come to see that all of these dynamics are have been overseen by God that work towards, in a sense, a perfect expression of, of God speaking through his written word, that if we take the all the even the difficulties of scripture and treat them seriously, including I'm I'm teaching right now through first John, nobody knows really what it was that that John was addressing by advising the things that he was advising. While, as you mentioned, Corinthians, some of those are clear, some of them aren't so clear. And then we find this all through. We we don't often know the problems for which we're given the solutions. And then again, it's like, oh, no, that means we can't understand the scripture. But even all those things, it becomes this, this genius web of written literature through which God has chosen to reveal himself. And if we would only grapple with the scripture on its own terms, not on our terms and not make it what we want it to be, 
but to right. treat it as it's really is with its actual, sorry, folks, its ambiguity, its nuances, right. the things that confuse us. If we allow ourselves to interact with that, then not right. only it's not about just getting each individual word right. We're exactly. drawn into a whole view of the world, approach to truth, approach to life that is of God. You've right. been nodding. I, I guess you agree. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Can you and, elaborate uh, even more than what I've said? <laughs> um, yeah, there was a couple of thoughts that came as you were speaking. Um, uh, I mean, all of that helps us grapple with, oh, yeah, another, another way of looking at this or expressing it is we're not translating texts, actually. We're translating a message. Because it's really the message that God is communicating to us. It's not a collection of words. It's not um, like a form, a more formal equivalent kind of translation feels that it's really important to stay close to the formal devices that were used in the original. If, if a passive was used, we should try and use a passive. If a, a pronoun was used, we should use a pronoun uh, and so on. Those are just, uh, and, and that's, there, there is actually a place for those kinds of translations, because sometimes when people are looking at uh, at an English translation, they might want to know, uh, was the passive use here or was a pronoun use here, uh, without necessarily going to the original text. There's a place for that. But ultimately, the main, God, God was a lot more interested in communicating um, his message of love and uh, and sin and redemption and all of that than he was about cubits and uh, uh, these kinds of details. So those kinds of details are not um, are not um, to be passed over. There's a place for uh, giving attention to them, but the primary um, the, the the primacy always has to be what is God saying to us? What is His message? Not so much what is what is the text that He uses to communicate that message. So it's this um, when it's the it's the uh, focus on the text as it was given, which sometimes leads to a, a very constrained understanding of the, na the nature of translation. You know, oh, word for word. Go on. Uh, let me just one more sense. Word for word translation is way easier to do than um, meaning based translation. In other words, it's way easier to uh, to uh, replicate somebody's word forms than it is to communicate their message. But that's really what God wants us to do. God wants us to understand his message. And uh, he uses word forms as part of that. But those are tools. And um, if we only focus on the tools and not what is the end result, um, then we miss. We, we, we don't, we're not as faithful to communicating God's message. Yeah, and if we had much longer, we would we'd unpack this even more. But I, um, I might have told you this one. Uh, some years ago, and I'd like to hear again what what your answer is. So I, I you know, I think there's there's um, push and pull, give and take on what you're referring to as the word forms or other kind of just the literary, even the literary forms of scripture, right. and how right. much that should be represented in the translation, and how much that might actually affect meaning and message. It's a whole other big topic that, yes. that you know really should be addressed but to kind of push that issue I remember years ago I was talking to a worship leader who was taking a worship leading course and um, at some point um, there was a discussion about relating the truth of scripture into a culture that 
of which the Bible was completely foreign. And the biblical culture was completely foreign. It's actually more foreign to us than we think it is. But right. but also the the Western world has been so saturated with scriptural references and and uh, that sort of thing for centuries. Um, it's even now people don't who don't know Bible at all we take for granted so many scriptural references. But there are cultures that have not heard them at all. And so yes. what this friend was telling me, and you know I don't even know if it's actually true, but you're going to understand this as soon as I mention it. So somebody was facing the statement in the Gospel of John uh, where John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now that is a, that's thick of biblical culture, yes. right? And biblical time period and all the rest. Right. And this, this culture that they were seeking to reach, they didn't even have domesticated animals. Right. So lamb sacrificing yes. animals that you own none of this was right. in their concept and so they ended up with something like behold the wild boar who takes away the sin of the world now as a jewish believer myself that was really hard to hear and you could understand why and yes. it's in it's on one hand i get the reason for it but that seems to be so far away from the essence of what the scripture is trying to say yes. that I don't know if they're if they're making it better or worse by translating it that way. Over right. to you. What do you think? Okay, that's interesting. Um, I I've heard stories about uh, people who in Papua New Guinea, for example, where pigs are so common and um, and are domesticated and even <clears throat> and children uh, know they they have pet pigs just like. Children might have a pet lamb, and those. I thought you were going to say the children are also domesticated. Yeah, right. <laughs> but um, actually, when I've heard uh, <clears throat> accounts of people using pig or something like that in reference to the Lamb of God, um, I've always been very suspicious of that. And I've done some some search, some googling, and different ways to find out. And I found in places where it talks about a particular translator who, who in Papua New Guinea who used pig uh, in place of lamb. And I contacted that translator, and they were horrified. They said they, they couldn't imagine where anybody got that idea. I've actually there's a, word, there's a word for that kind of phenomenon, how a, a, like a rumor becomes the established story. I can't remember right. what the word is. <laughs> right. So anyway, uh, I've, I've never actually found it documented that um, any, any translation has has actually gone to that extent and the problem i mean obviously as you know the problem is there's just too many incompatibilities to to make that kind of a cultural substitution creates way more problems than it solves oh okay so you oh, agree that, that theoretically let's say that's oh, yes. a theoret if we're having a, this discussion in a classroom right. and what do we now you mentioned domesticated pigs am i right to assume there are cultures out there that may not understand domesticated animals or am i that's not even a thing. Although I'm sure that's the case. I'm sure that's. So then, what the, do you the, the, like, what do you do with some of these oh, very so strong what you do, cultural? Yeah, go right. ahead. So the answer to that is um, that's a that's simply a translation problem. You're you're trying to find the closest local equivalent to this, and the closest equivalent there just isn't a good one. So you just have to find other ways of then of then building a local equivalent you have to there's no there's no solution to it other than to do a lot of teaching 
So that comes back to a question I raised kind of earlier. What is the burden of a translation? Should a translation, uh, a Bible, a translation of the Old and New Testament, for example, should it be able to stand alone entirely, all by itself? Should people, when they read it, be able to understand the whole counsel of God simply because of because of what's in the scripture text? And I would say no. Like that just is no, it's totally unrealistic. Um, and that's part of the uh, the role of the body of Christ, of the church. That's why God gave teachers and preachers as gifts to the body of Christ to help people understand some of these things. That doesn't say, on the other hand, that we can just be very careless about doing translation and leave everything up to the to the teachers to correct poor translation. It just means that uh, at the end of the day, there are going to be certain issues that we cannot solve very well simply in the translated text itself. We make yeah. use of footnotes, we make use of drawings, maps, all kinds of extra textual kinds of information to help fill in some of those gaps. And then we use uh, parents and teachers and friends and all sorts of other ways, personal kinds of ways to fill in more and more gaps. Now, you're not saying, though, if somebody comes up to you one day and says, you know, I you know, I heard your story. You love the Bible. I love the Bible. In fact, um, how I came to know God was I was doing this, that, or that other thing. And then I found this Bible in the, the Gideon Bible in the in the motel when I was in the, the lowest point of my life. I never read the Bible before. And I just opened it anywhere. I started reading. And I felt a presence come into the room. And, and I just stayed up all night. And I was, I was reading. And I came to know the Lord. You wouldn't say, no, you didn't. Because you didn't get, you know, right? Like, that's a real no, that's course. also a real right. thing yes of course yeah it happens yeah. it certainly happens it happens a lot and that's the way god god uses right. all sorts of ways to to reach out and to draw people to himself of course now what what goes wrong with all many of those stories where people have these very authentic but independent experiences with god in the bible is that right. they start writing out their theology and they expect everybody to understand all the other aspects of scripture the way they do and now we've got a whole new group and it's just based on a, a single person's thing right. and uh, and that can be just plain dangerous in fact Absolutely. in bible right. times they were dealing with people that were doing something similar and right. they were not living in in true community they were not having a uh, doing humble study of the scripture they weren't listening right. to elders and leaders who were more experienced than them and so the, the and it's interesting the bible itself encourages us to be part of community and and realize that there are people more learned and experienced than ourselves and that we shouldn't ignore the people that went before and there's just more to all of this than just me myself and god in the bible right right yeah, and that uh, that reminds me of another uh, part of the process of translating scripture. When you're dealing with with very um, very complex and uh, crucial central uh, ideas that are communicated in the scripture, so if the person who found this Gideon Bible, if one of the first verses they read about talked about the fear of God, you could imagine where they what they might what they might understand by that. And that's another good example of this whole problem of mismatch between the categories of one language and another. We don't have a good category in language for talking about what um, what the biblical authors had in mind when they talked about fearing God. Um, we don't have a good, we, we have a word glory, we have a word holy, 
But those words in English, um, the mismatch between the biblical categories and our English categories, the mismatch is huge. So, so reading scripture is a very interactive and an accumulative process. We understand more and more of God's message, the more and more we interact with it. And that's the way it is in Bible translation too. When we're working with mother tongue translators, we're trying to help them find a good word in their language that communicates something like grace or faith or holy. And oftentimes it takes years for them because they have to, they have to understand the whole message. They can't just understand it from one verse. And that's another reason why word-for-word translation just breaks down, because there is no often, oftentimes no one word, an, one obvious word that will work in a particular context, and especially then to try and communicate, try to use that same expression in every context in which the same Hebrew or Greek word was used. It just doesn't work. Yeah, and even as even the translations that claim to be more towards the word-for-word thing on the translation spectrum. There is no such thing. There That's is right. this Young's literal translation, right. uh, which which you basically you can't really read it, um, but it's trying to do that sort of thing. Um, but every uh, more like that formal equivalency type ha- introduces other words. They rearrange right. the words to make it into readable English. Is just yes. what you do. And I think right. so. One of the many things that you've um, underscored today is that there's a whole process to this and it's a there's a cultural process there's a communication process and right. dealing with all these various these things and i also i'm, I'm quite delighted because you know, i didn't really have a goal in talking with you today i just you know this issue of bible translation is so important um at, at so many levels is is to realize we sh- we shouldn't be looking at that that tribal group that's never had a, a written language before, that's never uh, had any dealings with Bible uh, ways of thinking before, and we think about them as being totally alien to the scriptures. Actually, we're all alien to the scriptures. Yes. Also, those of us who have been hearing scriptural teaching for decades, often we don't realize that we have been hearing interpretations of what the scripture says, and then that takes on a life of its own, and we confuse um, interpretations of the scripture with the scriptures, which is why we need yes. to all get back to to the Bible itself. And then there's things like this this show called The Chosen, get used to, get used to different, that is actually doing this magnificent job in providing a, a sense of what life in Bible times really was like, which the original readers would have known naturally. Right. Um, and right. we talked a little bit, I think, before we uh, we started. And there's, so there's things like, one of the ones I love is that, that the complex nature of the Pharisees. So many uh, believers reading the Bible um, mainly non-Jewish ones think of the Pharisees as like the bad guys of the New Testament, and they right. were so much more complex than that. And and yes. in the Chosen, they're actually demonstrating that. And for a lot of people, have never seen it before. And the episode that I watched last night with with my wife, they were they were doing this, and I was almost cheering that ah. they were giving a far better. Uh, context of the nuances that were going on at the time, which then leads us to understand the Bible better. Yes. Yeah, and and the thing is, when we're talking about what is what is the biblical text, 
you can you can limit it just to those those words uh, and phrases and expressions that are used. But really, any text, as we experience it, a text um, includes its its original context. It includes all sorts of assumptions of the speaker and assumptions shared with the original audience. All of that is really part of the t- of any text. Oftentimes, what I what I experience in people, uh, well, in fact, and myself as well. When I think about the nature of scripture, I sometimes, it, it's, it's language, and yet I sometimes attribute to it certain characteristics that I would never attribute to my normal experience of language. And that should be a sign to me. That should be, I, that should be a, an alert. Um, am I expecting something of scripture that I would never expect of other kind of communication events? And it might be, in some cases, it might be legitimate, but they have to be questioned. Yeah, so this is this has been great, Doug. Uh, I know we could talk for a couple hours more, and and uh, maybe we'll be able to do this again sometime soon. I so sure. appreciate you taking time out to, to to do this with me, and I hope people uh, who have been watching, listening, have uh, found this as as helpful as it has been to me. Something I didn't ask you before we started was if people want to contact you or ask you questions. What I've been offering to other folks is they can either do it directly with you if you're comfortable with that, or they could contact me and I could pass on their questions and comments to you. What, what's your preference? Either way is fine. Uh, if, uh, they, they can email me, um, Doug, Doug.trick at TWU.ca. Okay. That would so be Doug one way. Talk, that... Doug.trick at TWU.ca. I'm going to put that in the description below so you could check that out and you could have a conversation with Doug over email. Sure. That's great. That would work. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. No, it's been great. I've I've enjoyed uh, the conversation, Alan, and I always enjoy conversing with you. Oh, thank Uh, you. So it's been a blessing. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, you're most welcome. Yeah, we'll do it again soon, whether on our own or through this kind of venue. Okay. and so that that's it for this uh, uh, episode of thinking biblically. And it's just this is such a wonderful time because some of what we ended up talking about uh, illustrates for us the the need to truly think biblically. It's not just about you know reading the Bible or and and that sort of thing, but to we need to dive in and to allow ourselves to become saturated with the way God has revealed himself through scripture and, and how by the the various ways he has all through the scripture, he invites us in to see life from his perspective so that we can live effective godly lives. It's also why it's so important to get a broad-based understanding of the entire scripture and not be reading it like in bits and pieces like often happens and and even reading those parts that we don't like and don't understand and that's okay and especially because as we mentioned earlier the author is alive and he invites us into an experience of reading his word with him and you know i talk about there's parts of the bible i don't like God knows what's going on when we're reading parts of the scriptures. Let's bring that to him. And and like Jacob, who wrestled with God, we could wrestle with God through the reading of his word. Again, don't forget to subscribe to this YouTube channel and also click on the notification bell. Uh, feel free to contact me with questions and comments at comments at torahbytes.org. Uh, Doug's email is going to be in the description, so you could feel free to contact him that way. And so until next time, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically.